Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on June 2nd, 2015. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... So at a certain point in about the 50s, people realized that mathematics itself had become so complicated that it needed its own theory of how it worked. That's mathematician Eugenia Cheng. She's tenured in the School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Sheffield in the UK. She's currently scientist-in-residence at the School of Art Institute of Chicago, and she's the author of the new book, How to Bake Pie, spelled P-I, you know, the number pi, an edible exploration of the mathematics of mathematics, which means that she's in the branch of math called category theory, which you'll be hearing more about. In the book, Cheng uses recipes and anecdotes from food and cooking to illustrate points about math. Appropriately, she recently met with a few reporters over lunch at a Midtown New York restaurant. What follows is an edited version of that free-ranging conversation. You'll hear Cheng, me, and Scientific American's Clara Moskowitz. I'm pretty excited about this book, which is why I wrote it. And it's the sum total of all the things that I've been talking to people about for all the years I've been thinking about mathematics. Because I'm, I'm a very social person and I meet a lot of people who aren't mathematicians and so I'm always having conversations with them about what I do and the responses are often things like oh I can't do math or oh you must be really clever or uh, oh I'll never understand what you do and I think I've noticed that over the last 10 years or so the responses have just started slightly changing and instead of being oh I, I couldn't ever do math it started being I really wish I understood math more. I don't understand math, and I wish I did understand it more. And so I started sensing that maybe the time was right to reach out to people who actually regret a little bit that they don't understand math more. And so I had all this material in my head that I've been using either to teach reluctant students or just to talk to people at parties. And one thing I noticed in my lectures is that whenever I use food analogies, my students all perk up every single time. And everyone loves food. And many more people love food than math, which is a shame. But I realized that if I brought the two together, then maybe I could uh, show people some of what I love about math and hope that they could, people can find what they could love about math as well. And I think there are many things that are similar un, in an unlikely way between math and especially baking, because I love baking. Because baking is kind of basically magic. You take some things... You take eggs and sugar and flour and you do something with them and then out comes a cake which looks nothing like eggs or butter or sugar or flour. And it's amazing and if you don't understand how it happens it just looks like magic, mysterious magic. And mathematics can look like mysterious magic as well because you take some things and something happens and if you don't, if you don't see how it happened then it just looks like it's a complete mystery and you'll never be able to do it and then it's much easier to go and do something else instead. And I would like to show people that in fact... It's a very similar thing, but if someone explains, it just takes someone maybe showing you, showing you what it is and showing you how it actually can be quite fun. And that it doesn't, if you're not doing it just to score on the SAT or to, or to get an A in your homework to keep your GPA up, once you're released from those terrible pressures, which I can't stand all of those, it's, it's about how to think about things. And another thing I've noticed is that, that people have become much more used to the idea of keeping physically fit. And there's a, there was that great scene in The Secret of My Success, which I remember. And in England, in those days, nobody went to the gym. And there's that scene where he wants to talk to his uncle, who's the big boss, I don't know if you remember, and the, the boss is on the treadmill. And so he's trying to go on a treadmill and keep up with him. He keeps falling off or running, and he can't do it. And I remember we all sat there in England going, that's 
hilarious. Imagine the idea of going to run on a treadmill. That's ridiculous. And now it's quite normal. I mean, there's, there's, I went to the gym and the hotel this morning. There were tons of people there. It's just kind of normal that people see that it's good to work out, even if you're not an athlete or a sports person or going to run the Olympics. And I like to think that math can play that role as well. People are beginning to sense that it's good to keep mentally fit as well. And that, that the way I see math is a way of keeping mentally fit. It's about, it's about core training of your of your brain and your thought processes and just like you train your core at the gym even though you don't specifically there's an Olympic medal for core use which would be quite funny but it wouldn't be very interesting to watch I think you just kind of like it <laughs> and math is is the my idea of it is it's the core of how we think because it's all about logical thinking and it doesn't doesn't mean that that encompasses everything it's just useful to know which things it can encompass and to be able to think logically about things that should be considered logically. But I wanted to make it fun, because for me, it is fun. It's all, it's all fun. It's fun and it's beautiful, and I want to share that with people so that it can seem like it's, a, it's, a, it's something interesting, not a chore, because math has become a chore, I think, for, for many uh, people because of their high school experiences, and that's, it's really a shame. And, and also, people... Um, I think other mathematicians too often, they don't really want to let people in. That's what I think. Because mathematicians especially, and I say this and I am one, but mathematicians especially are very invested in feeling clever. They want to feel clever. And one very good way of feeling clever is to make everyone else feel stupid. And so if they can make everyone feel stupid, then they'll feel clever and that's what their, their self-esteem is wrapped up in. And so the, 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 the sense that they can do something that other people can't do is something I think that they actually want to preserve a little bit and I don't just I just don't believe in that at all I I want everyone to be I want to I, I don't believe in keeping people out I believe in bringing people in and that's what I want to do with this book I haven't had a chance to look at the book yet but I know that there's a whole mathematical field of the best way to cut things, mm -hmm. the best way to divide things. Mm -hmm. Do you go into that? I do, yes, a little bit. I mean, the, the, the theory is extremely complicated in the end. To solve it is one of those things where if you, to solve it for two people is completely easy because it's the you cut, I choose thing. Mm -hmm. And then to solve it for three people is already phenomenally complicated. You can, you can extend the you cut, I choose thing. But then, you, you, first of all, you have to decide what it even means to be fair. What does it mean to share a cake fairly? And this is one of the things about mathematics. You have to decide what everything means really carefully. First, once you've decided what it means, then you can think about it more clearly. And one of the processes of doing mathematics is first setting out your ground rules very carefully and then, and then following them carefully. And I've been teaching art students at the moment because I'm teaching at the school of the Art Institute in Chicago. And in the first class, I explained to them that, that mathematics is a place where you can make up any rules you want. And then you can follow them. And, so, and they loved it because they've known it as a place where someone gives them rules and they don't like the rules. But then suddenly it was a place where they could make up any rules that they wanted as long as they followed them. So they have to learn, first of all, what it means to make up rules. And then secondly, what it means to follow the rules. But once they've done that, they can do anything they want. And I said the worst thing that will happen is that your rules will cause a contradiction and then your world will implode. <laughs> all the time I was in elementary school and high school, I really hated my math classes at school really hated them and I don't know why I knew that math was something better than that partly because my mother who is mathematical had shown me some things just a little bit it doesn't take that much with children she just showed me a little bit of what was there so I always knew there was more there 
And then when I got to university, I knew I wanted to do a math degree because in England you just do one subject when you're at university. So I knew I wanted to do a math degree. But then I knew that I only wanted to do pure math because that was the, the essence inside math. And then I got to doing only pure math. And, I, and then this thing, this thing called category theory showed up. And I just had one, I had one tutorial with the, uh, Martin Hyland, to whom I've dedicated the book. And I just thought, his way of thinking, I just thought, oh my goodness, I want to do my PhD with this person. I really want to. And I didn't know what he did. I went and looked it up and it was category theory. And I read about what category theory was. I thought, this is the thing I've been looking for for my whole life. And it's, it's also a place where, one, another thing I say is that when you study, if you study birds, you need to come up with a method for studying birds. And that thing that you've come up with, the method for studying birds, isn't a bird obviously. It's a method of studying birds. Whereas with mathematics, if you come up with a method for studying mathematics, that's a new piece of mathematics. And so somehow the, the method that you're studying, you, you've reached a, a fixed point of where the method that you're using to study the thing you're studying is part of the subject itself. And so you can always, you keep generating more mathematics. That's why there's always more mathematics. Because everything that you come up with as a way of studying that one becomes a new piece of mathematics that you can then study. And then you come up with a way of studying that and you make a new, which sounds cyclic, it is a little bit cyclic, but the particular field I do, I think is the final, the final culmination of, of that, because higher dimensional category theory is the place where it's really the, the, the final point where you're studying, you're studying mathematics. So and what is category theory? Category theory is the mathematics of mathematics, so just in the way that mathematics looks at how science works, and it takes a certain aspect of science and kind of organizes it and looks at the structures inside it. Um, category theory does that for mathematics. So at a certain point in about the 50s, people realized that mathematics itself had become so complicated that it needed its own theory of how it worked. And so they had this amazing insight, which said that instead of studying objects as objects, if you study them via their relationships with other things, then you can understand a lot about anything just in terms of its relationships with other things rather than just by looking at the thing itself. And it's just like with people, if you write an auto, a, a biography of a person, you need to include all their relationships with all the people around them, their parents and their partners and their children and all their friends, because otherwise it would be a very incomplete biography of them. And it's the same with mathematical objects, it turns out, that actually the context of them, you can even ignore all the intrinsic characteristics of them and just look at how they relate to other things. And you, all this amazing structure appears. This was this extraordinary insight that the founders of category theory had that completely changed how mathematicians thought in the 50s. And now modern mathematics is the stuff that uses that idea. And classical mathematics is the stuff that doesn't. So it really, it's the turning point. Is that how it's possible to do category theory without understanding absolutely everything about all the other mathematical subfields? Uh, I mean, you can't know all of mathematics. No, you can't. So how can you do category theory unless a lot of the things that you don't know don't really matter that much for that's what a, That's an interesting point. And people who, there are some mathematicians who say that that category theory is too abstract, which is odd because all of mathematics is abstract. And I want to say, well, why? Why are you even a mathematician if you don't want to? Like they, they, they don't want anyone to be more abstract than them. It's terribly competitive. I just don't like the idea that someone has out-abstracted them. But, but yes, uh, because it's about ideas, this has, two, this has two consequences. One is that 
it means that I can write a book about it for people who don't understand any mathematics and it'll be fine. The other is that you do get some kind of nutcases who think that they can just go straight into category theory and do PhDs and research in it without, without having understood anything. Other than obvious things like you know, splitting a bill or, or figuring out the tip, what, are, what kind of ways do people use mathematics every day and maybe they don't realize, I mean that's arithmetic, but mm -hmm. maybe they don't, they don't realize they're actually employing mathematics on a daily basis. Anytime you're evaluating something and anytime you're justifying a point of view, because, because logic is at the basis of that and every, people should use logic. I mean, maybe most people don't use logic to, to, to justify points of view, but I wish they would. And that is mathematics. And uh, logic is what makes mathematics go. And it, it's, what mean, it, it's what causes us to know that things are correct in mathematics. And it's what causes mathematics to progress in a way that other fields don't, because we don't, there's, we don't disagree once something is done. In other fields, you have a theory and you have another theory, you can have an argument about it. In mathematics, if you haven't found a mistake in somebody's proof, then there is no argument. And the, the, the process of constructing those arguments, I think, is the thing that is, or at least should be, everywhere and be useful to everybody. And I would also like to say, though, that I don't think mathematics is just there to be useful. I think that I, I feel sad that math has this burden on itself. It's got the burden of needing to be useful, whereas other things like music, no one says, well, what's music useful for? It's, it's, it's fun. It gives, it gives people joy. And not all of mathematics, I mean, I think it is useful. And I say to people, I don't do it because it's useful. I do it because I love it. If it weren't useful, I would stop. So I always think there are two reasons for doing things. There's the reason you do it and the reason you don't stop. So the reason I do it is because I love it. The reason I don't stop is because I think it's useful. Can you tell us a bit more about the type of research that you do now? What are you studying? I, I study how higher dimensional structures fit together, basically. And it's related to space-time, because space-time is one of the most famous higher dimensional structures because you have three dimensions of space and then the fourth dimension which you can think of as time a lot of people say to me oh time is the fourth dimension and I say well it's one version of the fourth dimension um, and so the idea is that that we need to understand what shape that is and it's very very complicated understanding those shapes and so one way you can understand it is to is by breaking them down into smaller possible ones but once you've break, broken them down they're like Lego blocks and you have to think about all the possible ways of fitting and sticking them back together again and I mean, you can build anything out of Lego blocks, despite the fact that you have very simple pieces and very few ways of putting them together. It's amazing the complicated things you can build out of that. And it's the same with higher dimensional. You can sort of imagine higher dimensional Lego. Imagine how complicated that would be. And so what we try and do is organize, organize ways of expressing the way things fit together to make bigger structures. Because uh, mathematicians love reducing things to smaller parts so that you can then just understand, it's like going up a step. Then all you have to do is understand some small things and understand the, the process of sticking them together, and then you get everything. But it's, it's very hard, partly because the higher dimensions, they fit in our brain, but you can't write them down on a piece of paper. So it's really difficult to even write down the research that you're doing, because you have to think of a way of squashing it onto this annoying two-dimensional piece of paper. And, and I, I wish we had three-dimensional pens that we could just kind of write them in, but that would only give us one extra dimension. So does that relate, does your research relate to 
you know, supersymmetry or other theories that, that there are 11 dimensions in our universe, d does your research show how those 11 dimensions would fit together? It shows, it, it shows that all the possible ways that 11 dimensions can fit together. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that theoretical physicists use, but we don't tell them how to use it. So they can, it's that we give them, uh, we give them a language for talking about it. That's kind of what it is. It's like setting up the, the rule, the, the framework. And then people can use the framework. Other mathematicians and physicists and computer scientists can use the framework. I'm still trying to wrap my head around category theory. Mm -hmm. So I liked your description of the relationships between things. But like, what are some examples? I'm trying to think of... Do you mean exa examples of... Of category theory, of the type of problem that you might solve in category theory. The, the type of problem you might solve is you... For example, you might... We look for things that are the biggest or the most extreme in a particular world. So it's like the fact that we look for the, the tallest person ever or the, the, uh, the person who's won the most Olympic medals ever. And then, but then sometimes we turn it around and we say, okay, I want to find the world in which this person is the most extreme. And so, um, so then, then it's about changing, changing the world that you're in in order to make the thing that you're looking at extreme because then you can characterize it by it being an extreme and everyone likes to call themselves the best something something and something the example i give there was this restaurant in sheffield that declared itself to oh no what was it that happened that was the example i gave no it's the, it's the sheffield symphony orchestra which calls itself the largest amateur symphony orchestra in south yorkshire <laughs> <laughs> So they have found the world in which they are the, and not even the best, just the <laughs> largest. <laughs> so how is that about relationships between things? Because if you're the best, then that's your relationship with everything else. You've, you've surpassed everything else. Okay. So is it about making groups of things, like categories of things for which some kind of law holds true? Exactly. You've understood category theory. Okay. <laughs> so you decide what type of relationship you're interested in in any given moment. Mm -hmm. And you focus on that just for now. And it, it's... It's it's like mentally saving space, so you can just ignore all the other types of relationships between people right at that moment. So it's different from set theory, which I don't know much about, but always thought about it, the mathematics of groups of things. Also. Right, so set theory does not take relationships into account. And so it's like, I, I think I say this in the book, it's like building everything out of sand. And you can build things out of sand, but you can't build an awful lot of things out of sand. They kind of fall apart, and it's really tedious. And so... People have tried to construct the whole of mathematics out of set theory. It becomes incomprehensible very, very quickly because actually that's not how real mathematics is done. Real mathematics is really more about relationships between things. So if you start with that as a basis, sets, set theory just says everything is a set of things. That's it. Okay. And I have to build everything up as a set of things. Whereas category theory says everything is a relationship, has a relationship with something else. And that's what I'm going to use to start and it's so you can you can move between the two there's a way of moving between the two it's just a question of one more which one more closely fits how we really think and I, I think it's category theory because we don't think of things as just in isolation with each other we immediately maybe I mean I know I do this more than other people I often, whenever I see friends I always have to feel the need to figure out when I last saw them yeah. <laughs> and if I'm at a party I always feel the need to figure out how everyone knows everyone else it's like how do you know the host how did you meet how to, I just to understand how, rather than just kind of who are, who are you and who are you and who are you. Yeah. Mm.
That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can hear Christopher and Tagliata's June 2nd, 60-second science podcast on how chimps would cook food if they could master the pesky fire issue. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.